The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, This is Steve Orleans. I'm president of the National Committee. Uh, We've got two great experts on U.S.-China relations today uh, joining us to talk about the Xi Jinping visit to the United States, which will end in about four hours. Uh, you've got their bios, so I won't use everybody's time uh, repeating their many accomplishments. Let me just say, in terms of their affiliations to the National Committee, Stape is vice chair of the National Committee, and Sheen is one of our next-generation public intellectuals. Uh, Stape is going to lead it off with a discussion of the lead-up to the summit and what he uh, thinks has gone on. And then he'll turn it over to Sheena uh, to talk about the security aspects of what President Xi and President Obama discussed. But let me uh, thank the Star Foundation that provides funding for these conference calls and turn it over to Stape. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Steve, and good morning to all of you. We have just had a very important state visit by Xi Jinping, the president of the People's Republic of China. Uh, The run-up to the visit was rather gloomy. The press coverage of U.S.-China relations made it appear that we were in confrontation with each other. There were accusations of Chinese theft of U.S. business secrets and government personnel records. The Chinese uh, uh, recently paraded through Tiananmen Square, new missiles, that threaten U.S. carrier groups in the Western Pacific. The two countries have been locking horns over rocks and islets in the South China Sea. And these frictions, there are others as well, were exacerbated by U.S. campaign rhetoric with Republican presidential candidates calling for cancellation or downgrading of the visit. In addition, there was an unusual degree of pessimism within elements in the China-watching community among China specialists. We had a recent book which talked about a hundred year plot of the Chinese to uh, rule the world. Uh, We had a uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed piece by a respected China scholar uh, suggesting that communist rule in China was entering its final stages. And we had another highly respected China scholar talking about uh, we were at a tipping point in the US-China relationship. Uh, so I thought I would add a few comments as to why holding this summit was important. First, neither China nor the United States will benefit from the reemergence of a Cold War type of rivalry between the two countries. I guess strategic rivalry continues to rise. Secondly, we need a long-term perspective in looking at U.S.-China relations. If we think that having a confrontational Cold War-type relationship with China is not in the U.S. national interest, our strategy has to be geared to heading that off. And that means it shouldn't be upset by the types of problems that always crop up in relations between two big countries like China and the United States that have widely divergent backgrounds and circumstances. Third, Fears of Chinese domination of East Asia, in my judgment, are exaggerated. China is surrounded by major powers who do not have an interest in seeing Chinese hegemony 
emerge in East Asia. Fourth, the domestic repression in China is related to a fundamental contradiction that China is wrestling with. It is trying to modernize the country while retaining a pre-modern form of governance. It is precisely that contradiction that is creating the upwelling attitude in the mainland that the Communist Party feels threatened by. This is not something the Americans can determine the outcome of, but it means we have to ask ourselves, will our influence be greater within a cooperative relationship with China or within a confrontational relationship with China? And finally, I would make the basic point, and I know this well because I spent so much time in the U.S. government uh, working on U.S.-China relations, our policy toward China has always been grounded on national interests and not on naive assumptions that engagement with Beijing would in a few short decades transform it into a liberal democracy. This is why summits are essential. In good times and bad, they permit face-to-face -face communication at the highest level, and they are action-forcing events that energize leaders and bureaucracies to seek opportunities to expand cooperation and to manage differences more effectively. And that's exactly what we have seen come out from this summit. First, in the lead-in to the summit, both sides made an effort to put a positive spin on the relationship. Susan Rice gave a very good speech on U.S.-China relations at George Washington University on September 21st. And she, of course, is the national security advisor to President Obama, and she had recently uh, visited Beijing. And when President Xi Jinping arrived in Seattle, he similarly gave a positive speech at the banquet in which the National Committee and the U.S.-China Business Council co-hosted in Seattle. Uh, and he spoke positively about the U.S.-China relationship. What were the types of accomplishments that came out of the meeting? There was a U.S.-China joint presidential statement on climate change. The two countries, the biggest environmental polluters, if you will, in the world, are stepping up their cooperation to address issues of climate change. There was agreement to step up work on a bilateral investment treaty. There were various agreements on cybersecurity, including decisions to create a senior experts group to discuss appropriate norms for state behavior in cyberspace, and to establish a high-level joint dialogue mechanism on fighting cybercrime and related issues. There were decisions to expand law enforcement and anti-corruption cooperation, expand people-to-people -people cooperation, making 2016, next year, a U.S.-China tourism year, and a commitment on the U.S. side to have one million Americans studying Mandarin by 2020. That means nearly doubling the number that are currently studying Mandarin. There was agreement to expand and deepen cooperation on Afghanistan, peacekeeping, nuclear security, wildlife trafficking, and ocean conservation. There was agreement to expand cooperation on sustainable development, food security, public health, and global health security. Agreement to expand cooperation on humanitarian assistance and disaster response. There were two new annexes to the military-to-military confidence-building measures that were agreed between China and the United States last November. And 
in Xi Jinping's statement in his press conference following uh, the meetings with President Obama, he stated that China has no intention to militarize the Spratly Islands. The first time that Xi Jinping, at his level, has made this statement. There were other agreements, but because of time limitations, I just wanted to briefly outline why the summit was important and some of the understandings and agreements that emerged from the meeting between the two presidents. Uh, let me turn it over to Sheena now. Great. Thanks Great. very much. Thanks and first of all, Steve, thank you uh, very much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be on with everyone this morning. Um, I think that um, that SAPE has laid out well uh, the, the fact that expectations were really pretty low going into this visit. Um, and, uh, and so if politics is, uh, as, uh, as it's been said, the art of the possible, then um, I think that the summit did meet expectations. Um, and uh, Steve had asked particularly, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about this, um, one of the things that I found particularly striking uh, was the effort that was put into on the Chinese side to humanize and to connect with, um, with the American people. Uh, I think the use of personal narrative in Xi Jinping's uh, public address in Seattle uh, was quite striking and a departure from uh, previous uh, statements or speeches that, that I'm aware of. Um, and so in, in that sense, I, I think um, what, what might be most useful is to focus on looking forward. And so my comments today will focus more on the security realm than on trade and, and economics or the environment, um, so the, the accomplishments in that realm notwithstanding. Um, and to focus on the agreements uh, that were made and to look at, at uh, the progress that they represent and what would need to be done going forward um, in terms of implementation uh, to, to really capitalize on what was agreed on. Uh, the U.S.-China relationship and state visits do have huge consequences, not just for the two countries, for the United States and for China, uh, but, for, but for the entire rest of the world. Um, and so I think the... The, uh, it's important to place the agreements in context and to focus on uh, what's likely to happen uh, with them and with some issues that weren't uh, addressed concretely um, in the, the meetings and in the visit. Um, in U.S.-China policy, uh, implementation is always a, a key question. And, um, and so I, I'm going to walk through a couple of the agreements and, uh, and, and talk about um, uh, what I see as likely to, to be coming uh, in the months ahead. Um, so the first was the, the military uh, hotline agreement, um, which I think is a, a valuable step. Um, again, though, there, I think there are some concerns about how that's going to translate into implementation. If you, if you look at the agreement, um, both sides still have the option of answering within 48 hours. Uh, and crises um, can move much, obviously, much, much more quickly than that. Um, and in in past uh, situations, um, getting a hold of, uh, getting the two sides into contact has been an issue. And so um, I, I hope that there's uh, discussion and some norms established pretty quickly about um, contact that that is well below the 48-hour time frame that's outlined in the agreement. Um, in the in the security realm, uh, there were a couple of different agreements: cyber um, and a, a military uh, air-to-air um, agreement. And um, 
these are, I think, represent a good and very concrete step forward uh, in, particularly in, in crisis management. Um, but I think we're going to need to wait and watch to see whether they do, in fact, change some of the basic dynamics that have, and some of the tension that has come to characterize the U.S.-China relationship in the past couple of years, particularly on security issues on the ground in Asia. Um, so in the, the cyber realm, we had a, a, um, an important statement by President Xi Jinping that state-sponsored espionage against commercial actors and interests is, is bad. Um, China has typically emphasized, as he did in the, the speech, uh, that it doesn't engage in such activity as a government and that it's a, a victim. Um, so, and the, the biggest accomplishment in this area, as State mentioned, was to establish a, a high-level dialogue um, to put uh, the U.S. and China in regular communication on these issues. Um, I hope going forward, uh, and what I will be watching for, is to see how this affects uh, the concerns that have been raised by the U.S. business community. And the reason that I think this is important is that the shift in the U.S. business community's attitudes on China has been a, a significant contributing factor to the mood and the pessimism that was described earlier, um, and, some of, and has been a source of stress on the relationship recently, whereas before, um, trade and the business community were often a significant force for, for, um, uh, of optimism in U.S.-China relations. And so um, I'll be watching to see how uh, progress in this, this area affects um, the attitudes and the perceptions of the U.S. business community. Um, on the air-to-air the -air agreement, uh, this is, a, a, again, a, a very concrete step forward for the United States and China. Um, I think that what, uh, what we want to watch for is to make sure that a focus on crisis management doesn't inadvertently send the signal that accidents and miscommunication are the most likely or the only source of conflict in the relationship um, so that we continue to have candid discussion of areas where our interests may not be in line with each other. Um, I also thought uh, that it was particularly interesting, and I'll, I'll kind of bracket this, and maybe we can come back to it in discussion, um, to see an attempt at, at reassurance, um, if you can call it that, on the NGO law in Xi Jinping's speech. Um, when I was in China with the National Committee this summer, there was a lot of concern about the, uh, the draft NGO law. And, um, and so I think this, the statement and the fact that it was included in the list of issues uh, that, that Xi Jinping raised in his address um, gives me some optimism, and so I'll, I think a lot of us will be, will be watching to see what the, um, the next draft looks like, uh, as that's expected sometime later this fall. Um, I also wanted to, uh, to flag three issues that I think have the potential, especially in the security realm, to create some, some further waves in the U.S.-China relationship in the coming months, uh, maybe the sort of six to 12 month time frame. Um, one of these uh, was already mentioned, and that is the potential for U.S. campaign rhetoric to further stress the U.S.-China relationship. Um, uh, I think it's reasonably well understood um, on the, the Chinese side among uh, America watchers that um, that this is a, a pattern and a cycle in U.S.-China relations, but, uh, but I, I think it, it is helpful to, uh, 
to be candid about, about that fact since we are entering a, a year where that rhetoric is likely to be especially high. Um, the final two issues, uh, uh, Steve mentioned the South China Sea, and uh, President Obama affirmed in his remarks that uh, the United States will continue to fly and sail anywhere that's allowed by international law. Um, but as the Senate Armed Services Committee hearings made clear last week, um, that may not actually be what the United States has been doing. It, it uh, according to um, the PACOM commander, Admiral Harris, the U.S. Navy has been operating outside the 12 nautical mile um, area around the reclaimed reefs um, that, that China has been uh, constructing. Um, and so uh, if the U.S. Navy does start operating within that area, um, then uh, again, there is going to need to be not just a sort of general agreement on crisis management, but a set of norms and practices that actually put um, put that into practice so that uh, the two sides can can um, can continue to uh, have different interpretations but uh, but avoid a, a, um, unwelcome developments on the ground, developments that are unwelcome to both sides. Um, and the final issue that that I, it will unquestionably come up uh, in the relationship is Taiwan. Um, President Obama mentioned uh, the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, and as many of us know, uh, Taiwan, um, Taiwan is, is going to have a presidential election in January of 2016. There's a good possibility that the opposition, uh, the DPP, could, uh, could claim the presidency. And, um, and that, again, that will um, create some uncertainty and, and probably some, some stress on cross-strait relations and possibly U.S.-China relations as well. Um, so the way that I see all of these issues and the, these issues and, and to put them in context of the relationship is, is um, it seems to me that a, a recurring issue in, in U.S.-China relations is uh, sometimes that, that there's broad agreement on really fundamental and important general principles, um, but then there are significant differences that arise in the application to policy or the implementation. Uh, we see that with North Korea, um, to a certain extent with the South China Sea, and so I think that the, these, uh, the agreements that were signed, because they are concrete, are a really positive and useful step forward in U.S.-China relations, um, but that also going forward, uh, it'll be important for all, uh, all of us um, as China watchers and uh, as people who are interested in the U.S.-China relationship to keep an eye on uh, how the implementation is, is actually playing out because um, I think that that has a, the, a significant potential to uh, affect um, the ability to really uh, capitalize on the, the, the progress that was agreed to during Xi Jinping's visit. Um, so with that, I will, I will stop. And, um, and, and uh, Steve, I know you had some things you wanted to discuss, um, so look forward to, to all of the questions. Well, terrific. Two, two great, great presentations. By the way, in terms of the, the campaign rhetoric, I see the Global Times is editorializing that, that uh, Hillary Clinton has become Donald Trump because she tweeted, she hosting a meeting on women's rights at the U.N., while persecuting feminists, question mark, shameless. 
and the Global Times chose to respond. My view of these is China should just turn the other cheek and not uh, and not respond. The Chinese government and media should should simply sit the way the Mexican government does when statements are made about Mexico. They've already responded. I'm sorry. They've already responded. Yes. There, there have been Chinese statements uh, uh, criticizing uh, Hillary Clinton for making that statement. Yes. No. I'm saying the Global Times editorialized. Yes. Precisely. Uh, um, the, I guess you both. I mean, these requ- the, these summits require enormous amounts of work within the bureaucracy, which makes it impossible to move ahead on other kind of concrete uh, initiatives. Sounds like you both believe this was well worth it. Is that correct? In my case, it certainly is. Sheena. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, I think it was a worthwhile effort. Um, I would have liked to see a little bit more candid discussion of areas where uh, the two sides don't agree. Um, I don't think I think there's a, a way to do this that's quite consistent with the tradition of U.S.-China relations going back to 1972. In fact, I think U.S.-China relations are generally most productive when certain disagreements are pretty frankly acknowledged, and there was some of that in the statements made by both. Uh, leaders, um, but uh, I think I think that it's important to focus both on um, the progress that was made and the work that that still needs to be done. Because as we, uh, as you laid out at the beginning, Steve, there's um, the expectations were uh, of this visit were quite low, I, and I think you're right that uh, the visit met expectations. That still means there's a whole lot of work to do going forward. When when Xi Jinping says they won't militarize those islands. What's that mean? Either of you. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion of that within the China-watching community, uh, Steve. Uh, essentially, China has put in the infrastructure on the um, features in the south in the Spratleys that they occupy that would enable them to put in fighter aircraft, uh, artillery, uh, uh, anti-air missiles and other types of uh, military equipment that would amount to militarizing the positions that they occupy. Uh, The conventional understanding of not militarizing means that they won't do those sorts of things. Uh, They won't station uh, military aircraft there. They won't essentially turn their the, the positions they occupy in the South China Sea into military bases. But there's a lot of skepticism as to whether that's in fact what the Chinese will do or will not do. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see. But I think it's important that Xi Jinping has made this statement, uh, you know, in a press conference at the White House. Uh, so he'll certainly be held to his statement if the Chinese do take actions that are inconsistent with what most people would consider to be militarization. So, yeah, so I would agree with that that interpretation that um, that China has put in the infrastructure and that adding sort of specific military uh, equipment is the sort of the piece that's the the step where that I think he's referring to when he talks about militarization. I think part of the reason that there there are two reasons for uh, the skepticism that uh, that many China watchers have um, have expressed about about that statement in particular and about Chinese intentions. 
Um, the first is that the infrastructure is in some ways the time, most time-consuming part of creating the capability to use that, those areas for military purposes. Uh, it's much easier to move a couple of fighters or artillery over than it is to actually build the airstrip. And so um, the infrastructure is a pretty major uh, building block of the militarization process, um, even if it's not uh, militarization is the final step of adding the, the equipment, the artillery, the, the fighters, as State mentioned. Um, the other issue I think where, where uh, China watchers are skeptical is uh, that there is a, a obviously a, a disagreement over uh, whether or not these reclaimed areas are China's sovereign territory. And uh, for those who haven't seen it, I would um, recommend the uh, videos that are available of the Senate Armed Services Committee hearings. I believe they were last Thursday, um, maybe, I'm sorry, one week prior to the, the visit. Um, and the testimony in particular of Admiral Harris uh, about the fact that the United States Navy has been operating has been operating outside of the 12 nautical mile limit around these reclaimed reefs and airstrips, um, which could be interpreted on the Chinese side as a de facto acknowledgement of Chinese sovereignty over these islands, which is But ha hasn't not the Air Force flown directly over disputed territory during this period that Admiral Harris has referred to, even though they have not flown over the reclaimed islands, they're flying over disputed islands, and they have actually put a CNN crew on it. So it was a kind of a... An, uh, a, a so that plane did not verify the, um, uh, the territorial limit. Uh, Steve, this is a complicated issue related to the law of the sea. But uh, the issue has to do with the fact that in the law of the sea, you can only claim a territorial sovereignty over a rock that is above water at high tide. Shoals, which are above water at low tide, but are below water at high tide, cannot be the basis for a territorial claim. Some of the landfill operations that China has engaged in are landfill on top of shoals that do not entitle you under the law of the sea to make a territorial claim. So there is no 12-mile limit if the original shoal, which provides, if you build an artificial island on top of a shoal, it doesn't alter under the law the status of the right original um, feature. So this is where the issue arises. If it's an island or a rock and you have an expanded island built on top of that, it does justify a 12-mile territorial limit. But if it's built on top of a shoal, it does not. And the question is whether the United States will test by going into areas within the 12-mile limit of features that are built on shoals rather than on uh, rocks or islands. And that, that's, uh, since, according to Admiral Harris, since 2012, the United States has not gone within uh, 12 nautical miles of these particular uh, reclaimed shoals. Uh, the question is whether that will change going forward. Um, and the warning that the Chinese gave to the plane that had the CNN crew to leave that area related to what? The, the fact that they were flying close to the island. 
not that they had actually penetrated uh, a 12-mile airspace. So I think the, um, the, the point here is that this is an issue where there's some debate about what the United States uh, is and should be, should be doing, and, uh, and that it's, it appears to me to be a, somewhat up in the air. Uh, in terms of, of what the United States is going to do going forward, um, so I, you know, the reason I, I mentioned it, it is a, a very complicated issue, um, but I think it's it's one that could uh, could become a, a bigger issue going forward, uh, and I think it's it's one that we should all keep an eye on because it does have the potential to create or to affect tension in the in the U.S.-China relationship, particularly um, as the United States and China are talking about uh, expanding and building on uh, the mill-to-mill relationship. When Obama and Xi met in Sunnylands, there was great hope that the bilateral investment treaty would make enough project progress that when Xi came to the United States, you know, a year plus later, there would be some kind of agreement. What we got out of the out of the summit was really just a statement that will redouble our efforts, but no real substantive progress. Was that a disappointment? What's going on there? Uh, I don't. I don't think uh, the bilateral investment treaty is a very difficult negotiation. Uh, I, I had not really encountered any expectations that they could wrap up a, a bilateral investment in time for this summit. I think the real issue is whether or not they can speed up the negotiations sufficiently to accomplish it before uh, President Obama leaves office. Uh, but I don't, I don't know what you've been hearing, Sheena, on this. Yeah, I also, uh, what I've heard is that uh, the expect, is the expectation that the bilateral investment treaty will be a multi-year process. And so um, I've even heard of, of, of some, some hope that it could be accomplished before the end of President Obama's term, but also uh, the acknowledgement that even that would be very difficult and might not happen. Um, so I think we're looking at a multi-year process. And again, with the, the change of, uh, in the U.S. presidency next year, um, the, the potential for the bilateral investment treaty to kind of get put on hold um, if the Chinese side doesn't want to invest in something it doesn't think will stick under a, a new a new president. Um, and I would add, um, on the campaign rhetoric, to be clear, I think this has the potential to be not just a, a Republican issue. Um, there's also, as you mentioned, Steve, tremendous skepticism uh, in China of Hillary Clinton, uh, given the beliefs about her role as the architect of the pivot to Asia or the rebalance. Um, there's There's some pretty deep uh, skepticism and, and a perception that um, that she's not uh, likely to be particularly friendly to China. So I don't actually think that this is, is a uh, – I think there's there's a bipartisan um, element to the, the campaign rhetoric that's important um, to, to be clear about. Was Obama right in not attending the U.N. summit meeting on women's rights? I defer to Sheena on that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to take that one on. That's not campaign rhetoric. That's the president deciding, you know, with most, I think there were 90 
leaders of, of various countries there, including Merkel and, and most of the European leadership. And Obama chose not to go and to send um, uh, Samantha Powers instead. To be honest, I haven't I haven't looked at that, and I'm not sure. So I will uh, I'll pass on that question. <laughs> Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you think of this guy? I position. I think I think that was a wise decision. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, not President Clinton, attended the the one uh, 20 years ago. Uh, in other words, I think having a gender, uh, a, a female as the representative attending that is an appropriate action. But of course, many of the other top leaders were not female. Right. What do you think the discussion was like around the, the block of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, in terms of their ability to be read in China by Chinese leaders, uh, by Chinese citizens without using a VPN? You think Obama raised it, and what do you think the discussion was around that issue? I have not heard any insider comment on that, but uh, maybe Sheena has. Steve, do you mean the discussion on the part of the, the news organization? No, the discussion or? on, on the part of the president. I was told in November when President Obama was in China, he directly raised the issue of you know, blocks on various U.S. media outlets in, in China, and he raised it and, and uh, you know, a satisfactory response was not received. I don't know if it was raised. It wasn't really meant, I guess it was mentioned in a very vague way by Obama, but I don't know if it was raised in the course of the the private discussions. You know, I'm, I guess um, it was raised because the New York Times reporter got a visa right shortly before the uh, uh, she visit here. Uh, it had been held up for some time. So my guess is there have been discussions of that question in the lead up to the summit. And I would be surprised if President Obama didn't touch on it. I think this this may be one of the the issues, and I also haven't heard any particular inside information on this. Um, I would expect President Obama to raise it, and uh, for it to be um, for it not to get much response, uh, similar to what what happened in November. Uh, if you remember, in November at the I believe it was in November at the press conference. Um, a, I believe it was a New York Times reporter asked a question about uh, the number of journalists who had had difficulty obtaining visas um, and that this was really counterproductive to trying to uh, create a positive impression of, of China um, in Western media. Um, I would hope that, that that argument might have resonated and that with some of the efforts that we saw on this visit to humanize and personalize uh, the Chinese government and Xi Jinping in particular, that perhaps that issue has been revisited and that the New York Times visa um, is an indication of a, of a rethinking rather than a sort of one-off goodwill gesture. Um, but it could be either. And I just don't think we have enough information to, to know whether there's going to be any significant change in, in Chinese policy on this. As I mentioned before, I thought it was very interesting that Xi Jinping raised the draft NGO law and made at least some effort, uh, it sounded like to me, as I read the, ad the address and as, as I heard his remarks, to reassure the United States about the operations of um, foreign NGOs in China. But 
the devil with these things is always in the details. We'll um, see what the next draft. Well, a lot of this is, as you say, it's going to be in the implementation. Let me ask one final question, then open it um, to the callers for for questions. Did President Xi succeed in this humanization uh, effort? You know, his speech that he gave at the dinner that we hosted, you know, where he talked about kind of having put have not being able to put meat on the table when he was in Shanxi, um, you know, talked about Hemingway, talked about, you know, going to the place where Hemingway drank mojitos, you know, this this very kind of interesting way to go through U.S. media directly to the people to kind of humanize him. Did he succeed, do you think? Selectively, maybe. I don't think he really changed the overall U.S. view on that subject. But he he didn't worsen it. I think some people may have been impressed by that sort of reach out effort he made, but I doubt that it is going to have a serious impact on the uh, image of both him and China. Yeah, you know, I I thought again it was it was a really interesting choice uh, for his address to emphasize personal narrative to the degree that it it did. Um, and to, to use pop cultural references, Sleepless in Seattle and, and House of Cards. Although I actually thought you could read the House of Cards reference as a sort of um, a little bit of a, a dig at the United States uh, government and, and system. Um, that's probably open to interpretation. It's been um, a very popular program in China. <laughs> it is. Um, it There are tons of uh, ways to... to uh, I, think it's, I think it's the most popular illegally downloaded show in uh, in China um, which is kind of uh, kind of funny um, I you know the other I think the other factor here which which I certainly didn't quite put together before the visit actually happened um, was that some of the human interest aspect of this I think might have gotten a little bit more play had it not been for the Pope's visit um, and the competing national media coverage of the two figures I think probably did dampen down the sort of people-to-people or the humanization uh, piece of, uh, of that. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to know, and I don't know whether you all had similar perceptions, but my, my sense was that um, to have the, these two visits so close together for the White House and, uh, and for the United States um, maybe took a little bit of the popular focus off of Xi Jinping's visit. And, um, That's a very and, good point. And so again, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think it. It certainly didn't hurt the view uh, of of China. But again, with expectations as low as they were and the skepticism as high as it was, I'm also not sure that it had the impact in the United States that uh, perhaps the the Chinese um, were hoping that it would. Not to mention Not to mention Boehner's resignation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Operator, if we can open the, the, the floor to questions. Absolutely. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, you may do so by pressing star, then one on your touchtone phone. Again, that is star one to ask a question. We'll just pause a moment to allow questions to queue. We'll take our first question from Max Fox. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning, guys. Uh, just have a very quick question regarding the progress of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. You know, when we talk about the Free to 20 um, by the United States, um, has the Senate had, you know, some recent discussions on ratifying this, uh, this international treaty? 
that's on my question. Thank you. Sheena, can you answer that? I, I can't. So I, I think that um, that uh, I, I'm not sure I can speak knowledgeably to the, the sort of the U.S. politics side of this. I think that um, where it fits is that there's this overall um, concern and, and obviously some fairly fundamental differences between the United States and China in terms of uh, not just human rights as a very big catchphrase for a whole set of issues, um, but some very specific concerns that the United States has about um, some of the domestic reforms that Xi Jinping has pursued, a whole set of national security legislation combined with tightening control on Chinese civil society um, and uh, organizations, foreign organizations operating in China, and that includes, uh, as we've seen, some women's organizations. So. Um, I'm not able to really speak to the, the U.S. politics side of that, um, but I think it's, it's tied up in this larger concern for the United States about uh, some of the domestic developments in China in the past two to three years and that feminist or women's groups are, are included in that broader concern. Okay, thank you. Next question. We'll take our next question from Chao Yang-ying. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, I'm uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, I'm actually very interested in uh, Xi Jinping's uh, um, telling the stories how he uh, visited Hemingway's uh, uh, the bar and also the harbor in Cuba. In other words, I have never seen any Chinese leaders who are willing to go such a detail to show to the Americans that he understands American culture and people better than anyone else. Now. Why do you think he tried to do that? You know, the, the, such a short visit, and there were so many issues in his public speech. Uh, he spent, uh, counted about uh, five minutes actually talking the details. So uh, why uh, do you think, uh, my, um, my answer is that to try to show, assure the both Chinese and Americans that despite the recent anti-American rhetoric in China, I was a senior a Fulbright professor in China for the past year, I can see many scholars and the people in China, intellectuals, seem to be really being afraid of uh, the so-called um, the, the anti-Western uh, pollution campaign in China, especially institutions. So my feeling is that we try to use opportunity to reassure both Chinese and Americans, despite all these uh, campaign propaganda. He, at least, as the leader. Uh, wants to have a better understanding between the two parts and wants to have the cultural exchange between the two countries continue. So am I right in understanding his uh, effort in this way? I, I think you are. I, I think it was, a, it was a nice gesture on his part to show that he has been interested in American literature, is one of America's famous writers, uh, even to the point of visiting, you know, the bars and trying the drinks that Hemingway uh, used to have in, in Cuba. It would be like an American leader going to China and showing some familiarity with Fang poetry or with other aspects of Chinese literature, the Hong Lo Meng, the, uh, uh, some of the great Chinese uh, novels. Uh, it, would, it would be an effort to communicate that you were interested not only in the 
politics of the relationship, but also in the human aspects of it. Yeah, I think it was a, a part of this um, effort that was both at the beginning and at the end of his speech where that, the discussion about Hemingway took place um, to use a little bit of humor uh, and to personalize uh, himself and, and therefore the, the Chinese government. Um, I also think it, it is correct that there was a, a large Chinese audience for this visit that we should not forget about um, mm. and that the coverage of, of the visit in China has been massive and very positive. Um, the, the only other thing I think that's worth keeping in mind is that uh, this is not the only country where Xi Jinping has made literary and cultural references. So, for example, when um, at one point speaking to a German audience, he rattled off a list of, of German authors. Um, and so um, uh, that, that seems to be something that he is interested in and wants to, to communicate and talk about. Um, not just for the United States. No, I don't think that extended to necessarily visiting the bar and, and um, ordering a mojito. Um, but it is it is something um, that fits a I think a, a broader pattern of the what he's trying to communicate and and especially the way that he's trying to communicate it, um, both for the the foreign audience he's addressing directly and the Chinese audience back home. Had he yeah, has he in previous speeches abroad talked about you know, the deprivation as a youth, not having, you know, when he got sent to Shanxi, not having, uh, you not even being able to eat meat for months at a time, or was that something new? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would add, I do believe he also aims at the domestic audience in China, because many Chinese scholars, especially, uh, uh, let's say again, uh, universities, uh, universities and also uh, NGOs in China, are tremendously concerned about the recent trend in China about how to try to remove any Western textbooks or anything uh, from the campus. I think that the way to show to Chinese audience that, that this is not really, at least not his intention, because but, uh, but this is, is, right. he learned but, a lot from that, in other words. Thank that, you. That, okay, great. Yeah. Had the, the, China or, or uh, Stape, do you know if if he had used that kind of short story previously? To my knowledge, in a, in a public address like this, uh, that's the first time he's gone into that level of detail. Um, obviously, it was something that people knew about his, his background. Um, but, uh, but going into that kind of detail and, and also making the attempt, I think, to link his own experience with and his role as a witness to the dream, what he called the development of the dreams of the Chinese people, um, you know, and he he was he had a very explicit comment about the China dream only having power if it was if it was actually linked mm -hmm. to reality for the and and the everyday lives of, of Chinese people. Um, to my knowledge, that that was a new uh, development in what he's communicated at, at least to uh, an American audience. It may have come up casually in. Uh, in conversations on previous visits, I'm, but I'm not aware of any time where he's publicly to a foreign audience referred to it in that way and at that level of depth. Dave, do you have any? I, I can't uh, add anything on that. I will say that he's not the only Chinese leader, however, who has uh, made th those types of references. Jiang Zemin, for example, in many of his meetings with him, uh, and I attended many, 
Uh, he liked to quote the Gettysburg Address. He would refer to the sorrows of young Werther. He would cite uh, movies, American movies, that had had an impact on him when he was a young person in Shanghai. Uh, you know, this was part of the conversation with American visitors, in other words. He would uh, engage in that type of behavior. Jiang Zemin did not, to my knowledge, ever use that in any of his public statements, as Xi Jinping has now done. But uh, he certainly did talk that way in private. Yeah, I think that you know, it seems to me one of the big differences here is is to formally incorporate this in the, you know, the the prepared remarks and for publicly public delivery does seem to me a, a very different um, rhetorical strategy, at least on um, on the part of uh, a Chinese leader visiting the U.S. Next question. Thank you. We'll go next to William Cunningham. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, State, and greetings from Houston, Texas, uh, and also Sushina. Uh, I gather from your extensive uh, resume of the issues that uh, featured the summit, human rights did not, as a topic, come up at all or, at, or only on the margins. And no, no, that is no. very disappointing to me. Uh, I contrast that with the very powerful remarks that Francis made at Independence Hall yesterday, uh, Saturday in his remarks there. And I, th it is a, a contrast that is uh, very stark and very disappointing. I'll, I'll... Let me interrupt to say that in his press conference, President Obama said we had a frank discussion about human rights as we have in the past. And I again affirmed America's unwavering support human rights and fundamental freedoms of all people, including freedom of assembly and expression, freedom of the press, and freedom of religion. And I expressed in candid terms our strong view that preventing journalists, lawyers, NGOs, and civil society groups from operating freely or closing churches and denying ethnic minorities equal treatment are all problematic, in our view, and actually prevent China and its people from realizing its full potential. So I think there clearly was, uh, that was his public statement at the press conference with uh, Xi Jinping, and clearly it figured in their uh, bilateral discussion. Yeah, but what was, uh, what was Xi's response to that? Uh, Xi's comment was that uh, countries are different and have their own ways of handling this matter. Yeah, and that's all. That's pretty, that's pretty lame, I think. And well, uh, it, so I, think, I, I think it's... position on that question. Yeah. You know, I think this is an area where, um, given the the things that have been happening in China, uh, heading into the summit, this is this is one of the areas that contributed to the the low expectations that people had. And I think, um, given the political importance that the Chinese leadership attaches to domestic security, um, that. Uh, the my 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 own read of of it is that the United States um, feels the need to uh, to say what it believes and what it uh, how it views developments on the ground in China, but you know again I think this is an area where there was very little expectation that there would be any positive progress, um, especially given the very concrete tightening of domestic security that has occurred under President Xi. But this is undermining 
undermining efforts to do business in China, undermining the rule of law, uh, undermining the expectations uh, for a, a peaceful future. And it should receive more importance. I thank you, Steve, for reciting what President uh, Obama said, and I think it's very healthy that he said that much. But uh, in, 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 in actuality, uh, we have got to keep bringing this up and making the point. And uh, as, as, the, as the Taoist scholar says, water is the softest of all things, but it wears away stone. Thanks, Bill. Next question. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Richard Elliott. Please go ahead. Good morning uh, from Sarasota. I, I was interested in the part about the South China Sea, but also what really interests me is hearing about was there any discussion about the North Korean issue? Yes, there was. Uh, in fact, the both the Chinese and the U.S. side uh, stress their commitment to denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula and their determination to continue working together um, on that issue. This is, a, this is an area, I think, where um, there is broad agreement on principle uh, or the overall goal of denuclearization and some pretty fundamental disagreement uh, between the United States and China over how to accomplish that. Um, and uh, and so I think there was this statement about, yep, we'll keep working on it, um, but that hasn't really gotten, and that hasn't really produced a lot of progress and, um, in, in the North Korean nuclear issue. Um, the, uh, there's, there's been a lot of, I think there's more open discussion about whether the relationship with North Korea needs to be revisited uh, on the Chinese side among Chinese scholars and uh, think tank groups. You can see it in, in official media. There, there is some disagreement over whether China's North Korea policy is, um, is, getting, is actually serving China's interest. Um, and there's, there's clearly some, some friction in that relationship that, that wasn't quite as apparent before. Um, but that doesn't seem to have persuaded China to put pressure, uh, if, that's, if that's even possible for China. I think that's another area of real question is sort of how much leverage China has over a country that is um, as uh, intransigent on matters of national survival as North Korea is. Um, so there was a, the, you know, this sort of broad rhetorical commitment, but, um, but there doesn't seem to be a fundamental change um, in anything around the Korean Peninsula that would, um, that would lead me to expect progress on the North Korean nuclear issue any time um, during the rest of the Obama administration. I just don't see it. I think it's really important. Uh, I think it's tremendously frustrating that there hasn't been more concrete progress. Um, I, it's not clear, it's far from clear to me that this has been a, a priority for the Obama administration um, or that they see that this is an area where, where they can accomplish much. And um, I, I just am not optimistic that anything is going to move in the next year and a half or two years. Thank you. Next question. We'll take our next question from Robert Petrzak. Please go ahead. Hi. 
Thank you very much for this. This is uh, very informative. I was wondering if in the various pronouncements uh, of the presidents and their, uh, and their aides uh, during the course of the visit, you have a sense of how China may be addressing its economic problems or changes there might be in how it's addressing its economic problems, and particularly the, in particular the stock market problems they've been having. Dave, did you have did you have um, thoughts on that? There was discussion of that question. China provided assurances it did not intend to devalue its currency. Uh, the material I have seen says that the, the the Chinese gained agreement that the United States would support it if the IMF decided that the Chinese currency should be part of the special drawing rights uh, basket uh, that is um, managed by the uh, International Monetary Fund. Uh, so that uh, I think they did have extensive discussion on, uh, on economic issues, but the fact sheets put out by the White House afterwards don't have um, a lot of detail on that subject. I think and in his, in, his, in his speech at our dinner, he said a lot of countries have, have done that. In other words, the intervention in the market wasn't unique to China. Yeah, I think probably the best insight I, I thought I got into where China's thinking is at about, in, about its economy comes from the couple of paragraphs or a couple of minutes in Xi Jinping's speech where he uh, talks about about how China views what's what's necessary and um, at least from what he said it was it was sort of a commitment to continuing reform um, and and more of an indication of I think continuity in Chinese policy than any upcoming major change great thank you we, we only have one minute so let me close by with with Two, well, one question and then asking you to, if there's anything further you want to say. The question is, will Obama and Xi have another state visit during the final months of, uh, of the Obama presidency and then add if there's anything that we have missed in this very wide-ranging informative discussion? Uh, no, they, they usually, usually you only have an exchange of state visits. Obama has already made a state visit to China, and this was Xi Jinping's state visit to the United States. They are going to have a uh, uh, quite a few meetings probably before Obama leaves office um, because of the APEC summit and the East Asia summit and uh, and the Group of 20 meetings, etc. So that uh, there will be opportunities for the two leaders to again have face-to-face -face meetings but not in the form of a state business. Sheena, anything left you'd like to yeah, add? I, no, I, I, I have the same expectation about uh, meetings, but, but no further state visits. And um, no, I think we've, we've covered a lot. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much for giving generously of your time and your knowledge. That really was a very wide-ranging, very interesting conversation. And thank you all for joining us this morning. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you all. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Bye now.